So we have a little time for children this morning, and that's a good thing. It was wonderful to see you Christmas Eve, even though we didn't have a chance to talk very much. I wonder, when you were here Christmas Eve, did you have a chance to see the manger scene, the crash? No? Okay. Well, I'm going to very carefully take Lois Ann's computer and very carefully walk down the steps and try not to trip over this chasuble, which weighs about 20 pounds. It's beautiful, but it's heavy. So you're getting a tour of the church today. I hope, I hope you can see that. Oh, yeah. I did see that, actually. Oh, did you? Good, good. And when we sang our first hymn, the little baby Jesus, right in the center, we processed in with baby Jesus. Did you notice that there are no wise men? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you suppose that is? And I can tell you if you don't want to guess. Because... I don't know. Yeah. A lot of people don't know the really the wise men showed up when jesus was no longer a little baby and they weren't living in the stable they were still in bethlehem i don't know how long they stayed there i'm not sure anyone knows for sure but the wise men showed up much later and so um i think it's on the ninth i believe pastor tom and i have talked about this the ninth of january yes. yes good we'll actually observe epiphany and that's when epiphany means revelation, because Jesus was revealed to people who were not Jewish, like most of us, because the wise men came from a different country. And uh, they followed the star and got to see Jesus maybe when he was almost two years old. We just don't know. So the wise men are in the back of the church. And on epiphany, we'll bring them forward and they can, they can join us. So, and today we're actually celebrating Christmas Day. We have our readings and our hymns for Christmas Day because the lectionary, which is the rule book that we sometimes follow for these things, had us doing the lessons for Jesus in the temple when he was 12 years old. But Pastor Tom and I were talking, he just got born yesterday. So why would we have him in the temple 12 years old today? So we're doing a little thing in the church that we call we transferred. So we transferred Christmas to today, which is actually St. Stephen's Day. And that's okay. Um, do you know that Carol Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen? That's a 26th of Yeah, yeah. That's actually today. But we're not observing St. Stephen's Day today, even though it is his day to be observed. We're observing Christmas. And so that's why in your... Um, handouts that you get. Uh, there's, there's information about Jesus in the temple, but I did like the fact that they wanted you to find Jesus in various pictures. I think there were three or four in a column where you were supposed to identify who Jesus was in those pictures. And I thought to myself on a couple occasions, I wasn't clear which one might have been Jesus and which one wasn't because Jesus was growing up. Those were pictures of Jesus growing up years. And he was getting ready for ministry, but I think in his own way, Jesus was already doing ministry because he was growing up and increasing in size, getting bigger, and then more people knew him and probably loved him even at that time. 
So even before Jesus began his ministry, he was probably doing wonderful things. And maybe he was teaching as much as he was studying, as you see in those pictures. And I thought to myself, when I was your age, I would oftentimes hear people say, well, when you've grown up, you can do so-and-so and so-and-so. But really, when you're a youngster, when you're in school, grade school, middle school, high school, you can still do ministry. It's still life, isn't it? You're not just getting ready for life. It is your life. Just like for some of us who are retired. That doesn't mean we're not doing anything. We're waiting for something to happen to us. There's a lot that we can do. And so in those pictures, it shows Jesus doing things and learning things all the way through, even before his ministry began. So even though uh, our lessons have Jesus in the temple, today we celebrate Christmas Day, but we remember how he is going to grow up, how, how there'll be years of his life that we don't know anything about until he is baptized and begins his ministry. But that doesn't mean he wasn't doing wonderful things, just as you can do wonderful things when you're in school, in grade school, and all the way through. It's life. And we're given life in order to be servants of one another, to serve and love the neighbor, and to love Jesus. So, so there you have it. I was sure glad to see you Christmas Eve. That was absolutely wonderful. I'm sorry I didn't get to say hi. But we look forward to the day when we can all be together again, okay? Let's just have a quick word of prayer. Dearest Jesus, you have come into this world to be our example, our teacher, and our Savior. Teach us to do as you did and to love as you love, as we grow in grace, just as you grew up in grace as well. And for all of this, we give you thanks. Amen. That was a long children's sermon, but there's a lot of explaining to do. <laughs> Why do they have pictures of Jesus in the temple? And we're not talking about that today. So it is wonderful to see a number of you, really, on this St. Stephen's Day. I was afraid that church fatigue was going to strike in, in, uh, with a vengeance, and uh, it didn't. Thank you for being here and for joining us. We're, we're delighted that you are all here, visitors and long, long-time members. So, thinking back to that beautiful, wonderful, lyrical gospel lesson that we read, the first verses from the first chapter of John, St. Augustine writes of hearing it said, and you know, St. Augustine is a long time ago in the third century. St. Augustine writes of hearing it said that those words from the opening of John's gospel should be written in gold. And I think he's right. The earliest sermon that we have of Martin Luther's was preached on this text in Latin on Christmas day to his Augustinian brothers in 1514. It's the first sermon we have from him. And my perception really is that the best response to hearing this gospel read would be just 15 minutes of silence to sit with it. But that would set a dangerous precedent 
because you might want to have your pastor unemployed if you have 15 minutes of wonderful silence just to think about the gospel. We'd have to take a cue from the Quakers, wouldn't we? So we won't do that. We won't have 15 minutes of silence. But you, maybe sometime this week, will actually want to sit down, read those words out loud to yourself slowly, and then just sit with them for a few minutes because they are packed with meaning and reverence and beauty and lyrical soaring prose. So Mark's gospel begins with a somewhat abrupt announcement of good news, starting with the ministry of John the Baptist, about whom we heard so much this Advent. Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy that takes us back to Father Abraham. Luke begins with Herod, and he continues with those angelic annunciations that we heard so much about. And then he includes a genealogy that takes us back to Adam. But in contrast to those synoptic gospels, John's gospel begins even before that amazing singularity that expanded explosively into all that is seen and unseen. Before the Big Bang that expanded into everything, almost everything. Matthew Henry writes in his venerable commentary, he says, the one who was in the beginning never began. He that was in the beginning never began. In the beginning, and these words are in the identical Greek that opens the Septuagint version of what was the Hebrew scriptures. You know, the Hebrew language was, was dying even at the time of Jesus. And so a group of scholars got together and translated the entire Hebrew scriptures into Greek so that they would have some currency, just like Luther did to translate it into German so that people could read it. So the words that begin in Greek in the Gospel of John are the same words that begin in Genesis, same Greek words in the beginning. And don't think people didn't catch on to that because remember, they had had to memorize the first five books of the Bible at least. So in the beginning, the word was, the logos was, and we're familiar with that term, the logos concept that had been around in Greek thought since the days of Heraclitus, four or 500 years before John's gospel. So, in six words, John engages the Jewish people and the Greek people. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and dwelled. And you've heard this before in other sermons. That word means actually pitched a tent. The tabernacle the reminder of God's presence in the wilderness with the children of Israel when the glory of God was a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. We too, John says, have beheld his glory. And I love that King James Version and I will switch it around every chance I get. We've beheld his glory. We, all of us, first person, plural, in contrast to those, especially here in America, whose faith can be characterized, as Raymond Brown said, Jesus and me. And I like to add, Jesus and me and baby makes three. 
There's a whole lot of that kind of theology here in America. In an epoch of hyper-individuality, we are reminded of community, that we belong to one another. As Mary Oliver, one of my favorite poets, put it so gently in an interview, she said, I love this, there is something to do with all of us that is more than all of us are. The darkness can't comprehend that glory that we behold. The darkness cannot overcome it, the old King James says. For there is this light in all of us, created in God's image, all of us, offspring of the divine. One of my seminary colleagues writes, for John, God's glory is God's presence that defies powers of injustice and brings newness. One does not have to wait for future revealing of the fullness of God's glory and God's will for the world or for eternal life to be bestowed. Both are available now in Jesus. For John, God's glory is clearly manifest in the way God dwells among God's creation. That is God's Shekinah. God indwells the tabernacle. Jesus dwells on earth. God continually breaks into the world and makes God's glorious presence manifest. I can see it in the hummingbird out by the feeder in the backyard. Just as much as a service at Grace Cathedral where the organ is thundering and the incense is billowing. It's all God's presence, isn't it? I think so. We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. Carolyn Lewis, who teaches at Luther Seminary in Minneapolis, she observes that the word grace is used only four times in the Gospel of John and only in this prologue that we heard because once the word becomes flesh, then grace is incarnate in the rest of the Gospel. Jesus is the grace. David Rico, whose work is incredibly instructive to me, he writes and teaches here in the Bay Area. David has an expansive definition of grace that I'm going to share with you, an expansive definition, which is good for this old Lutheran who cut his teeth on the catechism. So Rico writes, we have found out again and again that more seems to be going on in our life than can be accounted for by our own efforts or our own level of knowledge. If we look back over the episodes and milestones of our lives, we noticed that often something beneficial was happening that was not the result of our choice, effort, or expectation. We were somehow guided to or given an impetus to make a leap into something new. That special assistance, David says, unearned, unforeseen, unplanned, and often unnoticed, that special assistance is a description of grace, the gift dimension of life. Grace is not meant to do it all. Grace is a gift, but it recruits our effort so we can join in the enterprise. Our life is thus a combination 
of what comes to us unbidden and what we choose to do in response. We might feel the coming of grace into our lives as a carrying about us from a power beyond us. We come to trust that something wants us to find fulfillment, happiness, and enlightenment, just what we want for each other when we love. The dictionary introduces us to an element of mystery when it gives the theological meaning of grace as a gratuitous favor from God or a divinely granted blessing. This form of grace, beyond cause and effect, we cannot generate but only receive. It is also true that we could contain potentials of strength and wisdom within us, but not necessarily the probability that they will activate. Grace is what gives probability. By grace, we are given an opportunity. We beheld his glory, full of grace, and truth. The word grace occurs only in the Gospel of John in the prologue, and then grace becomes incarnate. But the word truth appears more often in the Gospel of John than anywhere else in any of our Greek scriptures. Truth that shines like a beam of light into the murkiness of our own times when people can speak unabashedly of alternate facts when each one's perceptions are so entrenched that people can proudly assert, I'm speaking my truth. Wow. Wow. For the past several years, personally, I've been looking for language to help me address a question that's been rolling around in my mind. And the question is, what if the way, the truth, and the life are all the same thing. And recently I was helped in that whole process by hearing a theologian ask, what if truth is not a proposition, but a relationship? What if truth is not a proposition, but a relationship? Pastor Melinda Kuivik is a writer and teacher, and she has this to say about the relationship. She writes, the prologue to John, which we heard, makes it clear that God created and loves this material world and the material beings who live in it, and that God took on material form in order to redeem the world and us. God became incarnate in Jesus, but Jesus, though uniquely God's child and God's incarnate word, Jesus makes it possible for all of us to become God's children, who also embody God's word. Through Christ, then, our ordinary human lives can become places where God's glory shines. Through Christ, then, as one old catechism that isn't even Lutheran says, we are joined into humankind's chief purpose through Christ, and that purpose is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. The old historic preface for Christmas Day says this, For in the mystery 
of the Word made flesh, thou hast given us a new revelation of thy glory, that seeing thee in the person of thy Son, we may be drawn to the love of things which are not seen. May we behold his glory, and may we reflect his glory to others. For from him we have all received grace upon grace. Gloria in excelsis Deo.